Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 20 of Carlos Rios's All Ears. Today, you're listening to a conversation with Chris Knox. Chris is an accomplished musician with a music business degree from the University of Texas at Arlington. He has performed and worked with world-renowned artists such as Matthew West, Sheila Walsh, and Grammy Award-winning engineer Tim Kempsey. Chris served as a director of the Music and Youth Program with the Boys and Girls Club of Greater Tarrant County. While in this role, he was my direct supervisor. He trained me and other music staff on best practices in the areas of music education, recording studio techniques, and music industry career planning. He has now shifted his focus to the financial industry, where he works as a licensed stockbroker and financial advisor for J.P. Morgan Chase, helping clients all over the country with their investment needs. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Of my experience working at the Boys and Girls Club, um, where you were my supervisor, I think one of the the things that I enjoyed the most is for a little bit, I don't know if you remember, we used to do this meetings, there were like weekly meetings, and mm-hmm. the, we had like these things called rocks and things like, I don't even know. They try to have this weird initiative where they try, they wanted to pull the whole company under this kind of structuring method. The entrepreneurship model. And what was it called? The entrepreneurship model. Entrepreneurship model. Mm -hmm. And um, all I remember about it is that we would meet like once a week or something like that. And we'll briefly chat about that, but then we'll just talk about other things for a while. Yeah. Those are pretty fun chats. You miss working at the, at the club? I mean, there's um, pros and cons for sure. You know, it was definitely uh, a good time for me when I was there. I, it was a season of life where I kind of needed to slow down yeah. and do something that had some kind of low-hanging fruits. That was a, uh, it was a transitional season for me. So I was basically transitioning out of doing music full-time into right. doing investing, you know, pretty much full-time. Right. And so that was this season where I was learning about the stock market and day trading and yeah. and a bunch of other things that ultimately propelled me into a completely different, you know, place in life. Yeah. Were you always interested in, in investing in, in those in the markets? Um, so yeah, I would say yes and no. I was introduced mm-hmm. to the market really early in age, like probably High school age, my dad had some friends that were early, you know, into investing early. So they were like, you know, investing in Yahoo and and mm. Dell and stuff like that, you know, way back late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. So I got exposed to it. But, you know, as most teenagers, like, we're typically not interested or want to be bothered with the things that our parents are trying to expose right. us to. And so it's not we didn't cool. really do anything. Yeah, I didn't do anything with it. And then I used to run this graphic design company back around from like 2006 to 2009. Okay. And in the middle of those years, uh, 2007 and eight, I used to take my staff to this like motivational seminar called Get Motivated. And it had like a lot of high profile speakers like Zig Ziglar and stuff. And it oh, was, wow. you know, these, these day long, um, 
just experiences, just speaker after speaker. And I remember one year they had this whole presentation on this like investing software. And it was like, anybody can make money in the market. You just have to follow these indicators and you can buy and sell and all this other stuff. So I was interested in it. I, you know, I put my name in some thing and I went to this this seminar and it was a software called invest tools back then. Hmm. And so I was interested. I took this half day course and they were like, Hey, if you're interested in, in making money as a day trader, you can continue on, but it costs like, I don't know, $30,000 or something crazy. Hmm. And at that point in life, like I didn't have access to to money like that. So just never did anything with it, you know? And then you fast forward 10 years to 2017 and I had started to get back into investing and, and just before boys and girls club is really when it started. So probably like the summer of 2017 or early fall, is when I started to really kind of research and and so when boys I started at Boys and Girls Club in November of 2017 so it was all like super fresh and so it just worked out you know with my job there the way that they structured my role I was basically like a salaried consultant and mm-hmm. so I, I worked from home during the day and I studied the market and then I would go into the club in the afternoons and you know, hang out with the with the kids during programming right. hours as I built pong. up the program. Yeah, play some ping pong and basketball. Basketball, and, yeah. Yep, you know, and I had a couple of meetings during the week, you know, where I would work with the guys that were my direct reports, if you will, people that were working for me and mm-hmm. as I was building out the team and the program. So, you know, during the summertime, it was full days, obviously, but during the school year, I mean, nine months out of the year, it was relatively light for me schedule-wise. And so studied the market, read everything that I could and, you know, started to make money as a day trader. Yeah. And then obviously when COVID hit, it was, um, you know, the, I had told you guys before, you know, all the decisions that were made that I could kind of see how, you yeah. know, things would most likely play out. Right. So when it was time for me to transition out, then it just made, it was like the perfect timing for me to kind of transition fully full into finance full time. Yeah. So I told the original story because as I was learning to day trade, the software that I used to trade on was called, or that I still trade on, is called Thinkorswim, which is like three iterations of Invest Tools, which was that original software that I was introduced to in 2007. What is it called now? It's called Thinkorswim. Think or Swim. Okay. Yeah, it's a it's it's the advanced trading platform for a company called a TD Ameritrade. That's the brokerage. Gotcha. Very so, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So it was basically 10 years, you know, later that I just picked up this software and I, you know, somebody recommended it and I started to trade with it. And then, you know, it wasn't until I was in it that I found out that it was a, you know, like invest tools got bought by a program or a company called Thinkorswim. Thinkorswim mm-hmm. got bought by TD Ameritrade. And then before you know it, uh, TD Ameritrade was the brokerage that I was using in order to to trade and do everything else, and so it just kind of worked out. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Um, that's kind of part of the way you had your schedule structured. Is you'll get up in the morning and you would do some trading, and then you would go and do your tasks and talking to people yeah. and and all of that. 
and then yeah, no depending meeting, on no meetings with, depending on how no your meeting. your your uh, purchase went <laughs> you were in a good mood or not right <laughs> yeah no meetings before 9 30 in the morning right. um and then if i made money that day i was in a great mood if i right. lost money i would be in, a, in an okay mood you know there's bosses that were Right. were kind of uh, expected, but if I lost a lot of money, you know, then I might be in a bad mood or not come in at all. <laughs> yeah, I remember Josh telling me that, which Josh was in the in the podcast already. Uh, okay. I think he was like the fourth guest or something like that. Um, uh, Josh uh, told me that he remembers one day that you left because <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> it was a bad day. <laughs> it was a really bad day. It was one of those days where it was like I was in some some trade and I had a meeting or something. Something caused me to get out of the trade. Mm. And then it ended up making some crazy move in the afternoon. And I remember right before it was like leading up to the programming time. And I remember I just kept randomly checking my phone to see how how high it had went. And this was kind of like a GameStop type of event where this thing just kept going right. crazy high, crazy high. And it was like, I knew it was going to move like it did, but fear plus my schedules, it was a perfect storm of events. I was like, I'm just going to go ahead and sell this thing. Mm. And I remember looking up and it was like, I would have made, I don't know, 20 or 30 grand, something like just, it was a stupid amount of money for the day. Right. So I remember telling Josh, I was like, if this thing hits this price, I'm going to go home. Like, <laughs> I'm just going to be so up. So I'm not going to be any good to anybody. I'm going to go home. I ended up going home that day. Oh, yeah. man. I'm sure you're recovered. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't, I didn't lose any money that day, but it was still the idea of opportunity costs. They could have. Yeah. You're seeing yeah. it. Yeah. Seeing the opportunity pass by. Yeah. Man. So, uh, to whatever degree you're able to say, um, what is it that you currently do? Um, you work for, is it um, J.P. Morgan? Yeah, so currently I work for J.P. Morgan as a financial advisor. Right. And then I also own a real estate investing company. You own a real estate investment company. Okay, very yeah. cool. Very fun. When did that start, the second portion? Uh, I... Got into real estate towards the end of 2021. Mm. And then I started doing flips in 2022. Wow. And then I, that's when I launched like my, my official LLC and all that. Now, do you do the flipping yourself or do you, do you contract or how does that work? I have a whole team. So okay. we have contractors that can do, do the work. I have some people that are working for me directly. who are partnering with me directly. When it comes to like finding properties and it's really like, it's a, it's a for-profit service is really the best way to think about it. So okay. essentially we find people that have situations that, um, you know, things have just kind of gone south for them and they may be facing foreclosure or, you know, there's some motivation to move out of a property quickly. And they may not be able to sell it in a normal retail situation. Right. And so because of that, you know, somebody from my team will contact them and say, hey, I noticed that you guys are in such and such situation. 
Um, have you thought about selling or what are your options? If there's a way that we can help you stay in your house, we'll do that. But if selling is going to be the best option and you're not able to put it you know, for sale from a retail standpoint, then we'll come in and we'll kind of discuss some alternative options and potentially buy their house or sell it or find a buyer for it or, you know, there's a bunch of different strategies that we can do to help people and just getting rid of their, their house in a yeah. relatively quick manner. Right. You've always had this, or at least you strike me as a kind of person that has this very like business approach to, to the situations to life in general. Um, yeah. And and I think that to be able to do things the way that you do, like a cert, certain like personality, personality, personality temperament, uh, like it it works out really well. Like I can imagine your demeanor being very useful during a negotiation. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and sometimes I have to be the guy that's negotiating. So that I would, right. luckily I have a great team of people kind of that I partner with on all these things, and so. I'm not always the person that's doing the negotiating, right. but I am more often than not, at least the guy that's training on how to have the conversation. Yeah. And I think that that's probably a big asset of even probably what you guys experienced when you were working with me at the boys and girls club, you know, yeah. I feel like one of my strengths is to give people perspective on how to see things, how to communicate certain things, you know? Mm -hmm. And so um, in this business this kind of works the same way where, you know, having conversations about, okay, if this is a person situation, if we can put ourselves in their shoes and say, what are the things that they're taking into consideration? Because um, usually if somebody's in a, a, a bad spot, um, there are a million and one things going through their head about, you know, not only potentially selling their house or potentially losing their house, yeah. And we have to think through, okay, what are all of the other things that we can do to help relieve pressure or relieve stress from their situation? So it's a little bit of empathy. Um, it's a lot of trying to, you know, be understanding of people's situation, learn how do you not take things personally. If somebody lashes out at you because of X, Y, or Z, yeah. you know, and it's kind of like, again, going back to the boys and girls. So there's a, there's probably a lot of things that being in that environment prepared me for this environment. You know, we think about we're dealing with at risk kids and it's like, all right, well, this, this kid is coming to me, this teenager, you know, 15, 16 year old young man is coming at you with a ton of attitude and you recognize that you have his best interest at heart and you're trying to give him, you know, guidance that's going to help him make better life decisions as he's finishing high school and finishing the, the next phase or transitioning into the next phase of life. Right. But they don't necessarily see it that way, right? They're trying to think, how do they remain cool and, and remain, you know, uh, with whatever they think the perception is that other people are viewing them. And we're trying to get them to recognize it doesn't matter what people think. This is your actual situation. Right. Right. And so that's very similar to what I'm doing in, in the real estate space as well. You're telling people, it's like, look, this is what your situation really is. So these are what your options really are. You know, whichever way you go, I'm actually indifferent about it. But mm -hmm. if you would like for us to help you, these are the ways that we can potentially see to, to help you, you know, make the transition that's going to, yeah, 
uh, alleviate one bad situation so you can maybe focus on some other situations. Yeah. Well, so I read for the first time um, Robert Kiyosaki's book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, last year. I don't know if you're yeah. familiar with it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's a lot of good insights in there. And one of the lines that he has that struck me was, well, he's talking about our most valuable asset, and he says that that's your intelligence, and particularly your financial intelligence when it comes to making money, but really mm -hmm. just your intelligence in general and the knowledge, the information you're able to put inside your head and then put it to use. Um, mm -hmm. And that can look all kinds of different ways, but even the way you're talking about it just now, you're able to extract from your experiences working at the Boys and Girls Club and apply them to your new business venture. So. It's pretty yeah. cool. I think I think his quote is something like work for for what you learn, not for what you earn or something like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's like so much value in there. Like I'm working at, at an accounting firm right now. Uh, I've you know, I grew up being very financially illiterate. You know, I'm from a culture where we don't just we don't talk about money. It's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. It's awkward. And uh, but it's it's so important. Uh, another quote that I heard recently is like, if you if you don't learn to talk about money you're never going to make any <laughs> mm -hmm. and you got to talk about money and especially you know if you're getting hired for a job or you're doing a business negotiation or you're selling something or you're buying something or whatever it's like you got to talk about money and mm -hmm. you know be clear on on what your expectations are how you perceive the value of something or whatever but yeah, yeah i think you know, being comfortable talking about money is such a, a big deal. You know, um, money isn't everything by any stretch. And, you know, your identity should never be attached to your money and your financial gain or your status or anything like that. Yeah. But we do have to also accept that money does provide a certain degree of peace of mind. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. When you have a when you're in a place where you can take care of yourself and your loved ones financially. Um, that's, that's a, that's a big deal and it's a big stress relief. And so when you can have those conversations and you can understand it, that's, that's the first step towards generational wealth, you know, and, mm. you know, as a Christian person, I feel like generational wealth is like a, a, a big thing. It's a, it's something that I'm constantly, you know, being made aware of or, or, or being cognizant of as I'm making all the decisions that I make when it comes to how do I want to, how do I want to work and what's the type of work that I want to do and what are the goals that I'm setting for myself? Uh, that way I can, you know, experience um, wealth for myself and give experience to my family when it comes to letting them see things and go places and see the world because that exposes them to things. Um, right. And I think that is just, you know, it's just it's just a really important thing and so you know i've part of the big people always ask me it's like man you know i had uh, such a successful career in music i did a lot of really high profile things and yeah you know people would think that if anybody operated at the level that i did in music why would you want to do anything else right and i kind of jokingly say well drummers don't drive lambos right <laughs> <laughs> and it's and I say it as a joke, but in reality, it's like, you know, I felt like, you know, it's a stewardship thing for me to be able to utilize all the different gifts and the, the way that God has gifted me to utilize all those different things 
and, and maximize them. And so if I continued on the path in music that I was on, mm-hmm. the best version of that, I didn't particularly care for. Like I didn't care for the environments that it would have put me in. Right. And yeah. in order for me to maximize my income, I wouldn't have liked or I did not like what the sacrifices of the trade-offs would have most likely been based on the path that I was on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so as I was transitioning into finance, I recognized that I could make the money that I wanted to make and I was still equally as passionate about it. I, I enjoyed it equally as much. Yeah. But if I did the finance things, it would still allow me to do all of the music things that I enjoyed without sacrifice. Right. And so it's like, if I do music, I'm going to actually have to sacrifice and do music things that I don't enjoy in order to generate higher amounts of income, which means that I'm actually not enjoying music stuff as much, Mm -hmm. or I can do finance and do only the music things that I can enjoy, but I can do all of them. Right. I don't have to say no to something because this session or this artist or this whatever, you know, isn't going to be able to pay enough money based on the lifestyle that I want for myself and the experiences that I want for my family versus if I did the finances, like, Oh, I can take my family on a trip just because, and still work with this artist that may not traditionally be able to afford, you know, the type or level of work that I'd want to do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's and a- so it was, yeah, it was a way for me to avoid either or, but to do both and. Yeah. Well, and, and like you're saying, and, and, it's not like you're trading a life of being in a miserable environment where you're doing something you don't want to do just so that you get the the i guess the financial positioning you want but you're you found something that it's valuable has mark good market value investing and mm-hmm. running a business in real estate you know and that you find value in that and you're and it pays really well and mm-hmm. then um, you still have the avail- uh, ability to do the, mu- the music things you want to do. And I feel like oftentimes um, we put ourselves in situations, and I think as artists and, and, and creatives, which is very unfortunate because part of being creative is coming up with solutions. Uh, <laughs> uh, right. we, we put ourselves in situations where it's like, well, I either do this and starve or 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 not at all and i do something and i'm miserable for my entire life and it's like you know there usually is a third alternative right <laughs> if you use that little creative mind of yours to try to come up with something you like to do you enjoy doing and then figure out if it's valuable and and people are willing to pay money for it if it's if yeah. people pursue it as valuable they will uh mm-hmm. want to pay for it so yeah I'm still trying to figure out what that is for me because I I've done some a few things in finance and I I don't I don't love it, um uh I don't love the I guess the analytical side of it doing accounting right now financial statements all that kind of stuff preparing tax returns I don't I don't love it <laughs> I don't love yeah I don't I don't necessarily like that bookkeeping side of the business right. personally either I mean yeah. I like numbers and I like data but that side of it isn't like super exciting. Right. Um, as far as for me either. But, you know, what I what I was doing as a day trader was was very exciting, mm. very fast paced. And, yeah. you know, you can make there's an opportunity to make a lot of money 
feeling like you're playing a video game, but then there's also an opportunity to lose a lot of money. So it's, it's extremely risky and it does require right. the, the proper temperament to do it. And you have to have a certain amount of capital to really get in and do it, you know, at a high level. So I would, I definitely would not recommend it for most people. Um, mm -hmm. It's, it's never as easy as, you know, a lot of guys would try to make it seem for sure. Yeah. And then what I'm primarily doing as far as as an advisor is not very exciting either. You know, you're thinking a lot more like long-term retirement accounts and, you know, it, this is a 30 year play versus a 30 second play. Right. So it's right. lots of, of looking at people's situation and managing their risk tolerance and objectives and their understanding of finances and all that. So it's not, it's not super sexy either, but uh, you know, it's, it still allows me to kind of help people, which is kind of a core value that I have. And, mm -hmm. um, and then it exposes me to a lot of other things. So it's kind of, you know, I've had the opportunity to do kind of the best of both worlds in finance where I'm going to do the fun, aggressive trading stuff. And then also the slow, but, extremely beneficial side of it, which is retirement planning. Right. Right. So let's so, talk about yeah. music some more. Sure. Where I, I'm very interested how, how you got started, where you, you, you're an amazing drummer, or, I mean, I'm sure you could get back in shape. I don't know if you're currently yeah. drumming, <laughs> but when I met you, I mean, to my non-drummer uh, self, it, it was, you know, very exciting, exhilarating seeing someone, you know, at that level playing and, you know, being with the kids, you know, that was probably even more fun because they would get really excited and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. So tell me about how you got started playing drums. Sure. So I was kind of introduced to it kind of relatively later, you know, I was in high school or going okay. into high school when I started. So believe it or not, drums was actually like my third or fourth instrument. So first okay. instrument I was introduced to was guitar. Uh, my dad was a guitar player. And so he tried to get me to play electric guitar. And I still have like the little, you know, quarter scale or whatever, like real electric guitar upstairs um, that he gave me when I was, you know, a young kid to start playing. Did I and see then... that, that one time that we went to your place? Probably, yeah. It's a little yeah, that, small. Yeah, a couple black. of basses. And I think, yeah, I remember the mm -hmm. guitar being there. Yeah, I remember now. Yeah, so that was my dad gave me that when I was really, really young. And then after guitar, like that didn't really stick. Like it hurt my fingers as a kid. And it's like, <laughs> I don't want to play guitar. And then they had me in piano lessons um, when I was probably around 10 or so, 10 or 11. And they did that for a while. And that didn't really stick either. And then went to play drums at probably around 14. Mm. I got really interested in drums. And, and by the time I was probably 16, uh, part of the, the arrangement that I had with my parents was they wouldn't buy me drums unless I was taking lessons. And so by that point, I had already been playing for like a year or two. But what I would do is like, we went to this church and, the, and my dad played in the band's small church. And so mm -hmm. he had worked it out with the pastor that I could take the church's drum homes to practice during the week. And so every Sunday, it's well, a good deal. Yeah. I would pack up the drums from the church, take them home, bang on until, you know, our parents got tired of hearing it, pack them up, take them back on Wednesday, whatever the midweek was, if there was music, 
pack them up again, take them back home. And I did that for a while. And then they bought me some drums uh, from this this shop in San Antonio uh, called Jeff Riders. That's where you're from, uh, right? Originally from San Antonio, yeah. So bought some drums and... um, and uh, and then I ended up taking lessons there at, at this place, Jeff Riders. Hmm. And I studied with Jeff. He actually recently just passed uh, last year. Wow. Uh, but he, uh, so I would take lessons from Jeff. And then after probably six months or so of lessons, he was like, man, you picked this up really fast. I had just turned 16, I think. He was like, you want a job? So I started teaching drums after <laughs> only playing drums for like maybe two years or something. Right. And the whole thing was I just needed to stay a week ahead of the students. And so, you know, the very beginner kids would come in and I would play or I would, you know, teach them mm-hmm. and I would have, you know, 10 or 20, you know, elementary or basic entry level kids playing or adults, whatever. And then I would take lessons from Jeff at the same time. And mm-hmm. so I just as I got better, the level of students that it was allowing me to teach got better. And I did that basically all the way through high school. Um, And then like up until my junior year in high school, I was on this path to be like an engineer. Like that's what I wanted to do after college. And I remember uh, my little sister won tickets to see Janet Jackson on the radio. If you can believe how long ago that was, you know, she was caller 10 or whatever it was. And so my parents told her the only way she could go to this show was if I took her because, you know, we have big brother, little sister fighting and stuff. Yeah. So um, I was like, all right. So I agreed to go. So the show was Janet Jackson and Usher was the opening act. (laughs) As you know, how old old I am and how long ago this was. Oh, man. So, yeah. So we go to this show and that was my first time ever going to like a big pop concert. Right. And it was like a paradigm shift for me. I was like, Oh, that's what I want to (laughs) do. And so it was like my, I think that was like my junior year in high school. And I decided that I wanted to no longer go into being an engineer designing cars and Mm. just wanted to, to play drums for some big pop band or something. Yeah. So priority shifted you know, and uh, started to, after I got out of high school, like it was like my senior year of high school, I was figuring out like Berkeley and I didn't know that there was colleges that you can go to all this other stuff. And so I was like so far behind the curve when it came to all of that. My, right. Right. Cause you were in a completely like, different path. So I was on a different a path, paradigm yeah. shift. Okay. Let's, let's <laughs> figure this out. Yeah, but so you've like been doing ones, drums for a while, though. But that just didn't look like that's what you wanted to do in the future. That was just something for right. for, for your own. Yeah. Well, yeah, because like going into my like let's say the summer between tenth grade and eleventh grade, so at that point I've been playing about two years, and said so they could see that I was growing really quickly, and so they were like, "You can maybe get a scholarship to do music, and they'll help, you know pay for college." But it's it was like do music as like a secondary thing, but still be an engineer. Yeah. And so that was part of the reason when I started to take lessons, it was, I didn't know how to read and I signed up to be in band in my junior year and the new band director, like the old band director was leaving. So he just approved it for me to be in band, even though I didn't know how to read. <laughs> so like I'm in 11th grade, but in like ninth grade band. 
for mm-hmm. a freshman event because again I didn't know eighth notes from quarter notes like really nothing at all. Right. And then so then they let me like do the beginner band, couldn't do marching band or anything, and then they let me play in jazz band because it was a good drum set player. Yeah. yeah. Well, then by the senior year they were like, oh yeah, you got fast hands all this other stuff. Like I had caught up with my reading and all this other stuff now that I had also been teaching for a year. So like, you have to be in marching band. And I was like, I don't want to be in marching band. Marching band is corny. And like, I had all these, you know, you know, I just bad thoughts about marching band. It is corny. Yeah. You know, it's got its purpose, but sure. I I just, you know, for me, it was just like, I was a sports guy and band nerds and all this other stuff. I had just these really negative outlook on, uh, on marching band and so I, they forced me to do marching band my senior year in high school nice. and what were you like playing the little quad snare drum, or, or snare drum. drum. okay mm-hmm. and then um then i was going to try to do college after that but again wanted to maybe do like a berkeley or something but that didn't i didn't know how to apply and do i was like so much like last minute trying to scramble to do all that so then I ended up getting accepted to uh, Texas State, which at that time was called Southwest. Mm. So I went to, you know, got accepted. I was going to do the, the jazz studies program there. And I was really excited. And then I was first generation to go to college. So like the week before school started, we found out financial aid didn't, you know, like play out. And there was some other stuff. So my parents were like, well, we can't afford to send you to college now. We didn't know what to expect. They didn't know how student loans worked and all that. And it was literally wow. like the week school was starting. They found out all the stuff, the financial aid fell through. And so um, so I ended up going to a junior college in San Antonio, wow. um, San Antonio College. Actually, I did St. Philip's College for one semester, then I transferred to San Antonio College. But it was kind of the greatest situation because it was um, – all those preparing me for like the, the next season of life for me. So mm-hmm. I go to San Antonio college and the lady that was like the primary instructor, her name was Alice Gomez and their top jazz band was a Latin jazz group. That's fun. So why that's important is like, you think when I started playing drums, I was in a traditional black church playing gospel music. Mm-hmm. And then when I was teaching drums at Jeff Ryder's, like their track, they had like this list of songs, like a database of like week one, they play this song. Week two, they play that. And so it was like a bunch of like 80s pop rock. And so I was playing like The Police and Stuart Copeland and all these like really just big pop rock songs. And then I would go to school to play in jazz bands and I'm lo- learning all these like big band, you know, standards and take the a train and all you know all this yeah, traditional yeah. just like high school big band stuff so i'm learning all of these different styles and learning to play them in somewhat authentic environments mm-hmm. and so it's kind of shaping my my musical voice to be a chameleon which will let her later serve me as a studio musician because i could play those styles all authentically right so like the latin jazz thing was another piece of it you know I would go in and it's like, all right, uh, it was two, there's three of us that used to rotate. And so one guy would play drum set. The other two would be playing like percussion stuff. So congas and bongos and <laughs> all of the other things. And so I had to learn how to listen as a percussion player 
and then mimic it when it was drum set stuff. And it would be events that we would play where we wouldn't have all of the percussion instruments, you know, touring with us for these shows. And I would just be mimicking all that stuff, but playing drum set. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we would do tours in Mexico and all this other stuff. And so it, it taught me to, to play Latin jazz stuff again, authentically, right. like as it was supposed to be played. And then I did that for two years. And then I ended up transferring to UTA here in, in, in Dallas, Fort Worth and Arlington. And that's how I ended up in the area. So I was uh -huh. originally, uh, I was originally going to go to North Texas and I toured the campus. I didn't really like the school that much. Mm. And so, um, Somebody asked me if I was interested. That's like the in, big jazz school. That's kind of what the big jazz for. school. But yeah, yeah. But I was always an entrepreneur, though. Like I was always trying mm -hmm. to figure out how to do like business stuff, kind of at my core. Mm -hmm. And so one of my instructors at San Antonio College asked me if I had considered doing a music business degree instead of a jazz degree. And at that time, the only two schools that had music business was UTA in Arlington and Texas Tech. Mm. And so um, I called and talked to some people. I left a message for uh, this guy whose name is uh, Dr. Viner. He was over the percussion program at the time. And he called me back and we talked on the phone. It just seemed like a good fit. So I ended up coming and visiting mm. the school. I liked it. Yeah. And then made a nice decision. campus, UT Arlington. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a nice campus, a lot of really great players. And then a lot of the teachers that were at UT Arlington were North Texas graduates. And so you still got a lot of the North Texas curriculum and the core piece of what they teach there. But in a smaller environment, you know, it's a little bit or it's a lot less competitive, which was good for me because coming into the collegiate experience, you know, most people that are doing music at that level you know, they did middle school band, high school band, mm -hmm. band camps during the summer, all this other stuff. And you remember, like, I barely learned how to read music until I was 17. Yeah. And so coming into this environment, it was like, I still really didn't learn how to, like, I knew how to read like the eighth notes and 16th notes. But as far as like reading big band charts, I really wasn't great at that. Right. And they forced me to do marching band again in college which is, again, a completely different level when you think it's, you know, the guys that are playing at the collegiate level were like the best in their high school and they mm -hmm. did all the camps and all, you know, they were trying to do drum course stuff. And here I am, this drum set guy that just happened to be pretty good. And yeah. so it was a really, really big learning curve for me. Right. And on top of that, again, most people mm -hmm. in that go through the traditional percussion program, they're doing full percussion through high school. So they're also playing, you know, concert percussion and formality marimba and all the other stuff. And I never did any of that. So now here it is, I'm thrown into this, you know, college level experience and I'm supposed to be in my junior year of college. And I'm like, okay, this is a marimba. This is how you hold the mouth. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So it was, it was a, a struggle. Another animal. Like, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, when I was in, when I was in high school, because I, I moved to 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 the U.S. when I was 15, going 16, and uh, I had a very small moment of time when I I was I almost joined the band, but I was in English as second language classes, and the mm -hmm. schedule conflicted, and I just I couldn't get in 
for my first couple of years. And then I didn't try it later because it was just like, you know, I felt like that boat had sailed. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I always think back and I was like, man, I probably would have done percussion because I really, I really enjoy that a lot. You know, there's something yeah. about it. You know, I'm I'm all the time I'm drumming and stuff, driving people crazy. But you know, there's just yeah. just something about drums. You know, it's just so like all all instruments. There's obviously a, a physical component to what you do, right? That mm -hmm. motion producing the sound and that yeah. that connection. But with drums, is so raw. Like it's right. Like it, it's like what you do. Like it almost it almost feels like your body is actually the instrument. You know. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah. and I, you know, I think like when I think about music and in the comparison between the instruments, I think you know the the very basis of all music is rhythm, right? Mm -hmm. Right. You can have music with rhythm and no pitch, but you can't have music with pitch and no rhythm, right? Right. And so I think when you, when you think about it in that very core thing, like everything that we do is built upon this idea of of rhythm and how do you create emotion um you know and so drums is, is such a you know it's such an important aspect of just the way that all music is created it's powerful yeah yeah my experience in, in college too it seems somewhat similar to what you were saying um a little, a little bit different for me because i didn't really get formal education um until i went to college um I, I was pretty much self-taught on guitar and I sort of took piano lessons for a little bit, but you know, they consisted of me catching up this, this is still back in Mexico. I'll catch a bus and two buses that I had to take. And I'll do that once every other week and I'll play piano for an hour. And so I'll, I'll pray or play piano for an hour every other week <laughs> for, wow. for a year. So that was my, my training, uh, and it was my uh, step grandfather who who taught me mm. a little bit of piano and how to read music, and that was really my my first experience. And I I decided I didn't love doing the bass clef and the treble clef at the same time then, but I mm. really loved improvising, and so that's when I really he would just kind of let me play with his piano for you know after I was done with the lesson he would just kind of mm. go to the back of the house and I would just wail on the piano for for a while and kind of let all that energy out but yeah. then uh i was like okay i want to read be able to read music on the guitar and i thought it'll be easier because it's just one clef but you still have to play play oftentimes you have to play the same amount of stuff it's just all crowded on one stand right um, right right so anyway um being a going to college it was a lot of catching up for me too that first year I think after the second year, I was pretty caught up, but the first year was pretty rough because you're right. You are with all these kids that they done all the summer cams. And I mean, my, that's how I met my wife, Katie, mm -hmm. and she'd been a two, two time all-stater uh, with French horn and her family, they're all musicians and they're, they have incredibly well-developed ear, you know, they can s sing like any any other given day you know you can go to the house and if they want they can break into four-part harmony and it's beautiful you know but mm -hmm. you know that's not where i come from it wasn't your experience yeah yeah and it, it was really uh it was a challenge for me because not only was it just the 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 cultural piece of like having people who have been in this this program for 
you know, their whole experience. But, you know, Texas music is a cycle as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, in Texas, it's like you have this, these massive football teams and then these massive band programs that are built around these football teams. And then it's like you do middle school band and then high school band. And then right. you go to college and you study music education. And then while you're in college, you're a TA, you know, or you're teaching, you know, as as a, a part-time job, private lessons for some high school or middle school. Right. And then you graduate and then maybe you do a graduate program and then you end up as a band director and then the cycle continues. Right. Right. And so for me, once when I decided that I was going to do music full time, it was automatically on the pop side. And mm-hmm. so... You know, doing you didn't fit in that structure. <laughs> I didn't fit in the structure, and yeah. so I came in as this guy that could that could play drum set at a you know relatively high level for you know for my age, and had no experience with any of this other stuff. And so the the guys who I grew up in this kind of in the system, you know, they looked at me as some type of outlier. Mm-hmm. because it's like you don't belong here you don't know how to do all this other stuff and i looked at them as like you guys are all losers because none of you guys are going to get real jobs and <laughs> can make real music and it was just like you know there was this ignorant you know butting of heads and you know mm-hmm. there was part of it that was you know arrogance on my part you know at at that age because i'm looking at all these really you know big high profile things and i you know, when I moved to the area, I got connected with a lot of guys that were working in music full time already that were doing a lot of really high profile kind of pop, mm-hmm. you know, stuff. And yeah. and then because I was in a music business program, I was doing an internship with Sony. And so I had a lot of like nice. pop, you know, things going on. And so, you know, you really couldn't tell me much, you know, which wasn't a good thing. But this is kind of like the reality of what was happening in that, in that mm-hmm. time when looking back. So it was a lot of tension for me, just as I'm constantly, you know, telling people without filter that, you know, their their past was terrible and, you know, they weren't real musicians and all this other Mm -hmm. stuff. And they're looking at me, it was just, you know, it was a really interesting time period that, you know, like I I didn't understand what I didn't know. And, And there's a time and place for both sides of, you know, the industry and the music, there's a time and place for that educational system. And there's a time and place for the pop culture creatives as well. I find it interesting that like there's so much that there seemed to be so much division within the music realm when it comes to, you know, the more traditional classical academic side of things and the versus the most commercial corporate, uh, you know, driven um, market driven side of things. Uh, and I feel like you don't really see that. Maybe I just don't know those worlds very well, very well, but you don't see that that much in something like, you know, theater versus TV or something like that. Like whenever I hear them interact, it's like, Oh, I really admire what you do. And I really admire like what you do or whatever. I feel yeah. like when it comes to music, it's like, Oh, you're a sellout. Oh, right. you're, you know, you're a loser. You're never gonna, you know, make any money <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, what? Yeah, music is a really interesting place. It's like it's this universal language that everybody can understand and connect with it. Mm -hmm. But there's also a lot of bias in music where everybody feels like the way that they do it and their version of it is like the best version of it. You know, so it's like even when you get into the performing side, it's like the jazz guy will look at the pop guy and it's like you can't really play. You know, 
blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And then the pop guy will look at the jazz guy and it's like, well, you don't make any money and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then both yeah. of them will look at the educators and it's like, well, all you can do is play what's on the paper, but you don't have any heart or feel in what you do. And then the educator will look and it's like, everybody stands on their kind of on their island of their sphere of influence as it relates to the, the industry or their segment of the of music yeah. and and kind of look down on the other end. In reality, all of them are are kind of necessary and they all serve different purposes. Yeah. And so you have to you have to learn to appreciate what each of them do and and really accept that one is not necessarily better than the other. They are all kind of necessary. There are yeah you know, requirements in order to have this full picture of what music can be. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've always kind of seen myself uh, in the middle. You know, I, I love classical music. I have a very deep love for that. I mean, that's how I really came to, like, my moment was not Usher and Janet Jackson. My moment was, you know, listening to Beethoven and Stravinsky and, and these guys. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, that's what I want to do. Um <laughs> which almost cost me that job with the boys and girls club uh, <laughs> uh but yeah man but i love uh i just love making music and sound and and I, i'm not too concerned with with like following certain rules you know i i i, I just like enjoy creating music you know my one of two of my most uh memorable times uh, growing up learning about music where that where i was like oh man i really love doing this whatever the heck i'm doing right now i don't know what it is do other people do other kids do this um mm-hmm. was i had a guitar and i didn't know how to play it but i loved the way that it sounded and it was given to me it was a takamine it was a really nice guitar i wish i still had it it was probably worth like fifteen hundred dollars two thousand dollars which was a lot for a little punk kid that didn't know how to play it mm-hmm. um but uh you know those little fans you can buy like when you go to a like a, a what do you call it, like sea world or something you know those little foam fans that are like a, mm-hmm. a dollar or probably like twenty dollars if you buy them at sea world but um little foam little fans or well, I, I used to get those foam lace and i'll put them on the guitar and I'll use a pen, you know, and I'll do sliding sounds and I'll mm-hmm. put it on different parts of the guitar and I'll put it on the wood and just mixing sounds. Uh, I would I would do this. Uh, there's, there used to be this default uh, sound editor on Windows, uh, mm-hmm. like Windows XP. And it was just this little window with the, you know, the little playback buttons and all that. And I remember I was I found the root folder where all the window sounds were, all the notification sounds and chimes and all of that. And you could throw those in there and edit them and stack them and reverse sound and stretch them. It was very rudimentary and you can only do so much and you're only working with one track. Uh, but I would spend hours messing around with that, hmm. not knowing that there was such a thing like music production you know just where i'm from that that was just not a thing but the technology was in front of me and so i kind of mm-hmm. and the and the internet hadn't taken off yet so there was no youtube yet there was nothing like that yet now i'm now i'm sharing how old i am um so it was just like just trying things out and playing with sound and whatever was in front of me and i was like man i really like this i wish it was something and so when i went to college i, I learned well there's a music composition degree that kind of sounds like it and it turned out it really it's not exactly it, 
although in some ways it is. There's just no right. future in it <laughs> other than, you know, being a, an academia, which I have no interest in doing. So, but yeah, man, music is just so cool. And, but it's, it, I do find it sad that there's so much division, like we were saying, you know, earlier. And yeah, it's just, it really is this kind of universal language. And somehow, you know, we turn it very quickly into the Tower of Babel. Right. Yeah. You know, ultimately, you just got to walk in the lane that, that you know. And I think that what I liked about, again, the experience at Boys and Girls Club was we were able to kind of tap into a little bit of both, you know, expose mm -hmm. people to, you know, the academic side while, while teaching theory and stuff. And, um, you know, there's a little bit of traditional theory, but then there's also like the pop theory as like the Nashville number stuff. And then we're doing yeah. it while they're playing songs that they know and they love because it's typical radio stuff. And, yeah. you know, it's like you're, you're giving a kid a medicine, their medicine, and they don't even know that they're taking it. Right. That was fun, man. Uh, really learning, trying to come up with creative ways of of getting children who have no concept of how music works or how playing an instrument works, trying to get them to to do music and to enjoy it. And that was yeah. a that was a very interesting thing to try to do. They didn't always work, and it was I forget the way you used to say it, but it was basically just control chaos, you know. <laughs> Just trying mm -hmm. to <laughs> trying to create a little bit of structure around this very chaotic chaotic environment. So, yeah. Um. What else uh, that I want to talk about? Yeah, uh, I want to talk about Gateway. I feel like that's something that I don't know a whole lot about, but you did a lot of work with mm -hmm. the church at Gateway. Do you still go there? So I still attend occasionally. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I worked there for a little over 10 years, and I attended there about 15 years total. Okay. And um, So what was your role was, with them? Um, it changed over the years. Um, so there were time periods where I was just a musician, just playing uh, mm -hmm. for like their weekend services and or sometimes their touring teams. And then uh, there was a time period where I was um, an educator, so I was helping to develop, you know, uh, musicians that were preparing to be on the worship team or mm -hmm. some of the musicians that were actually on the worship team, you know, serving on the platform already kind of working to take those musicians kind of raising the bar and raising the standard. Right. And then this is a very um, production also, heavy uh, church, right? Yeah, very production heavy. I mean, it's like that level of production is the equivalent of doing, you know, a TV show every week. I mean, it's yeah. very, very high level production. It's really great team of people, lots of technology mm -hmm. playing with sequences and tracks and TV stuff and video. And, you know, it's very, very high level production. So it was a uh, really cool, uh, really great experience. A lot of great people there, a lot of really talented people. Uh, so I'm grateful for the time that I you know, spent there for sure. Um, I also did some video production work for them as well. So they had, um, mm -hmm. There was a time period where they had this program called Worship Team Academy, which was their, for lack of better words, like a school of worship, you know, where we were training, mm -hmm. more of like a craft training thing, but training people on all of your rhythm section instruments. So bass, drums, guitar, piano, keys, mm -hmm. like electronics, all that stuff, mm -hmm. as well as vocals for people that are singers and, you know, singing on the worship teams. And so I had a part in shooting a lot of, 
are producing a lot of video content for those classes, which was right. really cool. Um, was that your you first know, experience up. with video? Uh, not my first experience. Okay. So I shot an instructional DVD back in 2008. Right. Right. So that was my first experience doing like, you know, big production, you know, multi-camera shoot, DVD, all that. Mm -hmm. um, so when I went to Gateway, or by the time we got to doing that type of work there, I'd had some experience in thinking about how do you, how do you do storyboarding and script writing? Mm -hmm. And so I kind of started on that side of it. And then after we did, uh, we shot the curriculum for the drum program first, and then that went really well. So then they asked me to start to also kind of speak into some of the other programs. So then I started to help them with some of their curriculums. And then from there, I got into actually producing some of the video content and shooting it and editing it. And then doing some of the, they didn't do a lot of editing on the video, but I did a lot of editing uh, on the post-production of all the audio stuff and mixing mm -hmm. stuff and getting audio and video synced and stuff like that. So I worked yeah. very closely with a, a few of those, those leaders there. And that was a really, really cool experience. And I did that for about uh, maybe four years. Well, let me see. I did that from 2014 to 2017. So yeah, about yeah. four years. Very multifaceted. Yeah. <laughs> and then they used to do these really, I mean, they still do really big like productions like mm -hmm. for Christmas and Easter. I mean, think a Broadway level production, yeah. you know, where you're reading big band charts and all that. So there was a few years that they would do those with a live band and I'll typically play for that as well. So, mm. you know, my, my gateway experience, you know, kind of got the best of like a lot of my different skill sets as it relates to video, because I was used as a player. I was used as an educator. The yeah. player was like sometimes more pop rock or just pop music stuff and then it'll go all the way to big band type of stuff and and chart reading you know you're looking at a an hour you know broadway musical so you can mm -hmm. play any style of music you know we were doing stuff some of the shows were a lot of the shows were like parody shows so they would mm -hmm. take like a lot of disney themes yeah. and then kind of rewrite the scripts based on that so you could be playing music from lion king and aladdin and Mm -hmm. And all these like just again, just think really big Broadway level production and yeah, again yeah. reading all those stuff, doing lots of tracking for pre-production and um it's just really cool experience. Yeah. When so when did you kind of stop doing that or transition out of your yes role? So I transitioned out of teaching for Gateway mm -hmm. whenever I started at Boys and Girls Club. So twenty seventeen was my last semester working for the church in that capacity. And that, and I was also, so you have two separate entities. You have Gateway Church, and then you also have King's University, which is like an accredited college. That oh. was their home campus where their, yeah, the primary campus was one of the old Gateway campuses. So the, the church and the college are somewhat connected. And so I was mm -hmm. also an adjunct professor for the college as well, teaching mm private lessons. And then I would also help with some, maybe some songwriting stuff or some production stuff. And so, um, so in the end of 2017, that was my last semester teaching for the college, as well as teaching for like Gateway's worship team academy. And I went basically pulled back to only playing drums for weekend services. And that was it. No teaching or anything right. else. 
Right. And then I did that all the way up until 2021. And then that's when I, I stepped down from yeah. uh, playing as well. How This is kind of a tangential thing, but how, how were things, because that's a very, like, there's a lot of people attending that church at once. How, how did things look like? I always wonder how things look like on big churches like that during COVID. Yeah, so, um, you know, just like everybody, you know, when COVID yeah. first hit in March, everything basically shut down. Yeah. And um, for the worship team, you know, there's a mixture of people that were volunteering to be a part of it. And then a mixture of people that were on paid mm -hmm. staff based on tons of different factors. Sure. And so, you know, they were, because Gateway was such a high technology based ministry and they were already doing video and, all, and a bunch of other things. Yeah. The transition you know, was really seamless for them because or they were them. already broadcast. They already had the yeah. infrastructure in place yeah, for were, that. They, yeah. they were already doing it, very big internet presence, you know, pre-COVID. Yeah. And it's so not just someone's with the with their iPhone trying to put it on Facebook Live or something like that. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. And so there really wasn't a major need in and and how to do things differently as far mm -hmm. as from just the production aspect of it. Yeah. Um, but where they were trying to figure out is they had this large group of people. I mean, at that point, I think Gateway was five or six campuses already. I think wow. they're probably nine to 10 now yeah. in the Metroplex. But at that point, it's five or six. And so you had this large group of people. You figure if a normal band at Gateway would have been bass, drums, electric one, electric two, acoustic one, mm -hmm. maybe a second acoustic, primary keys, secondary keys. So you got eight musicians plus a front line of another, let's call it five people. Yeah. On any given weekend, you can have 10 to 15 people on platform mm -hmm. and you have two to three players stacked on each of those instruments. So you're talking 30 to 45 people at, across five campuses mm -hmm. that were serving on a very consistent basis. And that was part of some of them part of their livelihood and their income and all this other right. stuff. And so yeah. they had to figure out what they were going to do to try to help some of those people kind of transition because now you're just using one core team to record all the videos. Yeah. And they were, they would basically shoot like they would take one day and record the worship for like a month in advance. Mm -hmm. So they would, you know, record 15 or 20 minutes of worship, take yeah. a break, record another 15 or 20 minutes, take a break, do it, you know, and then yeah. slowly just release that content. So even that one team was really only working one or two days and that would be everything for the month. And yeah. so they were trying to find other ways to allow people to work and do stuff until things started to reopen probably around I think October. Or so, right. Yeah. And then that's yeah. when services started. Being, being in Texas, it, it probably was a little easier to, to get, slowly transition back to to something close to normal yeah. so i guess just to start wrapping up since we're we've been here for a little over an hour now um where where do you see yourself i mean i think from the way you've you you talk about the different stages facets of your life it almost seems like you're able to uh pinpoint oh, oh yeah that was a transitional moment or that was a you know, this was leading to that or this this particular piece of knowledge that I was learning in that moment, you know, was feeding into this new yeah. area of your life. Where where do you see things going? 
do you see music take a, taking a main stage again in the in the future? Uh, I don't know if music will ever take, but the primary thing, like that'll, I'm gonna let, that'll be my, my primary source of income or my primary focus ever again. Mm -hmm. um, that's not to say that I won't always do music. I mean, we just recently moved into this new house and mm -hmm. you know, I have a full recording studio. It's called, you know, it's two rooms oh, and nice. it's got its own dedicated bathroom. And it's like, it's a really nice space. Yeah. And I don't know when I'll use it again, you know, but it's here in case I get inspired and, you know, somebody that I know calls me and I want to take on some passion project, I can record a full band mm -hmm. and I can do all the things that I would want to do with a bunch of really nice high end gear that's just, you know, that has been sitting and collecting dust over the last few years. And, <laughs> uh, but now, you know, it's available. And so, yeah. You know, but but I know my focus has been about just doing things on the finance side and in, in the investing world. And so mm -hmm. focusing on that, I think, is going to for sure be the priority until I hit a couple of financial milestones that I'm going to have targets on. Right, right. And then once those milestones get hit, then for sure, then I'll probably dedicate some more time specifically back towards music. Yeah. But it's, it's going to be organic for sure. You know, it'll be just doing the music things that I, that I want to do versus the things that I have to do because I have obligations connected to it. And I think that that makes the, the experience, you know, the most enjoyable, at least for me. Yeah. Uh, came up this idea recently about uh, concerning money and, you know, a lot of people say that phrase, the money, the time is money. Mm -hmm. And it's it's like, okay, there's some truth to it for sure. Um, but I think then people interpret that as meaning you need to use your time to get money. And I feel like that's backwards. <laughs> it's well, like yeah, it is backwards. You need to use uh, I feel like the more appropriate appropriate response would be to use money to get time because I think in some ways time is more valuable because you get to decide what to do with it. So it's like you're saying, yeah. I love music, but I'm going to be able to enjoy it more <laughs> if right. I don't well, have the financial burden of having to use music to supply my needs or wants. Sure. And it, this goes back to even the Kiyosaki model. It's like mm -hmm. when you think about those four quadrants that come with, yep. you know, how people generate money, you know, if you were exchanging time for money, well, then your time is... Uh, you know, it's not an infinite resource. Like there's only so much time. And if you're trading hours for dollars, you, you're going to hit a glass ceiling on how many dollars you can make very quickly, right? Yes. At that point, you're trying to specialize your skill sets to increase the value per hour that you're making that exchange for. Mm -hmm. But if you're trying to get to the place where you're legitimately generating wealth, you have to get to the point where you're not, generating it on a one-to-one -one ratio, like a dollar per hour. You have to get to the place where you're generating multiple streams of income, where you're generating money based on other people's efforts and or mm -hmm. money while you sleep. It's money that's working for itself. Right. And so that takes a different type of thought process and a different type of team of people because you're not doing that by yourself, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the other piece of it. You have to start to learn how do you work collectively and collaboratively Mm -hmm. uh, in order to increase that, 
you know, that ability to, to generate money on a larger scale. You know, one of the things that I remember somebody shared with me is like, you know, a, a dollar bill is just a certificate of appreciation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so if you do things that more people appreciate, you will get more money. Right. Mm -hmm. um, if you find something that, you know, a pen costs, you know, $1 and a gold pen costs $100. Right. So, that the gold pen is more appreciated, right? Yeah. And if you can find a thing that is either greatly appreciated or a thing that a lot of people appreciate, so you're talking quantity versus quality, mm -hmm. you have to figure out one of those two things to do and do it at a very high level. Now, very high level does not necessarily mean better than everybody else, but it needs to be at a high enough level that a lot of people will want to, uh, show you appreciation and pay for your thing, your right. good or your service. Right. And so trying to figure out what that is, what's the thing that you can do that adds value that people will want to appreciate you. And then and how can you again leverage that, grow that? And I think that that's a key. And even as you're talking about doing it in music, like you make money in music. I think that it's uh you know it's a uh, a, a fallacy that people say you can't really make music, make money in music. There's mm -hmm. tons of ways to make money in music. That's not just the very shiny pop record thing. You know, mm -hmm. people make great money and you've never heard of them, right? Uh, but they've been able to find something that they can sell. And again, people will give them those certificates of appreciation. So, well, on that note, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been making music puns this whole time. <laughs> on that note, uh, well, I really appreciate your time. Um, sure, man. This is this is uh, been great. It's my Thank pleasure. You. I appreciate the invite. Yeah, yeah. You're you're from the beginning. I was like, I need to have Chris over. This is you know this podcast is one of those things that I'm trying to put out there, and you know. I'm not putting a price to it, but for sure I'm putting, uh, I'm hoping that people will value it. And, you know, with that value, valuing will come appreciation and, you know, hopefully growth uh, exponentially, you know, because part of the other lesson that I learned is that, that I've learned recently is that it's not only uh, part of the reason that you get stuck with that time for money model is because you're serving only so many people, like, mm -hmm. you know, like your employer or, you know, direct people like your students right if you're teaching uh, scalability you know being able to give value to large amounts of people at the same time and so yeah yeah well again thank you so much really appreciate it and i don't know i think i'm going to use this whole podcast i think it's good <laughs> awesome well yeah any any other way i can help for sure yeah. just let me know Hey, same thing, man. If, if you want to chat, um, I'm, I'm all ears. All that's the, yeah, that's the name of the podcast. Carlos Ruiz is all ears. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. All right, friend. Well, thank you again for your time. Yeah, man. We'll see you. All right. Bye.